I'm going to read another little piece of scripture. This is a good day for reading scripture. This is John's account of the resurrection. Fair few chunk of, of verses. It'll come up on the screen, no doubt. If not, follow on your, in your Bibles or smart devices. And uh, let's see what John shows us in all of this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put it. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, although they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know what they've done with him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And I kind of imagine her in the tomb, and she turns around, and the light's pouring in, and she's kind of dazzled by the sunlight, but there's also this figure. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And she said to her, Mary. And at that moment, she realized it was him. And she fell upon him. And he said, Whoa, 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 whoa. The extraordinary thing. The extraordinary truth that some would want to dumb down or play down. That Jesus is alive. Now I want to just do two things today. I want to sort of give a little bit of the evidence for the resurrection. But I'm not going to labor on that. You know, two or three minutes at most. But I want to move on as it were to what that might mean for us today. First of all then... The empty tomb itself, that is a puzzle. It's a puzzle because there was a huge stone in front of the tomb. It had been sealed by the temple guards. Matthew's gospel tells us that actually there were guards placed around the tomb. And yet still, the stone was rolled away and there was no body there. What happened to the body? Did the disciples steal it? Apparently not. They were all, as we later discover, terrified for their very lives. Their great movement had been destroyed in five days. Dennis did a wonderful job last week of talking about the, you know, the coming into Jerusalem and the, the Holy Week, as it's often called, and the, the events of that. They went from you know, winners to losers in the space of days. Now they were in fear of their very lives. Did they set upon the temple guards and 
Did they move the stone and did they steal the body? What for? Why? First puzzle. Second puzzle, was it the Jewish authorities who stole the body? Well, of course not, because they just immediately turned him into a martyr. They were exactly and precisely afraid of that. That was what they did not want to have happen at any cost. So where was the body? We have in every single account of the resurrection, this curious thing about the grave clothes being there. Well, if you were stealing a body, would you have said, oh, oh yeah, uh, I tell you what, let's just take his grave clothes off and let's fold them up and let's put them. No, you, you just grab the body and run, don't you? That's what you do. You don't sort of do a little bit of housekeeping and sort of hang the trousers up and put them on a, you know, whatever. Of course not. It's very strange. And the, other, the other question I have, and I've got two or three questions this morning, But the other question I have is, if the body was stolen, or if the body was carried away, why haven't we got some, in these more enlightened times, some fantastic shrine to Jesus? You know, why do we have to go on pilgrimages if we go on pilgrimages to various places where saints' bones are, but there's no no chapel of Jesus where we see his bones? Nowhere Has there ever been a claim, not even in Rome itself, in the heart of the Vatican, a claim that these are Jesus' bones? That would have become an international hit overnight. People would be flocking to see the bones of Jesus. But that never took place. There are a lot of questions here. And many greater minds than mine have studied them. And time and again they come to the reluctant conclusion in some cases that maybe what was said about Jesus is true, that he rose from the dead. I have to say this, that that when one sees and reads about the history of Christianity, in the 300 years particularly after Jesus' death, the fact that it survived at all was a miracle. For the first 300 years until the reign of Constantine, who declared it the the kind of national religion, it it, it really was the the religion of servants and slaves. Servants and slaves. And yet, it seemed to grow. It gained traction. It gained adherence everywhere. There seemed to be some life in it. And that's what we're talking about, life. There was life in the thing, even though Christians were persecuted horribly, even though Nero used Christians as human torches to light the way into the uh, Acropolis and what have you. Ghastly things, even though they went into the arena and were torn to shreds. That's not the kind of religion that really would seem to attract people unless there is truth at its very core. These are the questions that both intrigue, excite, and trouble me. But here we are, the 21st century, in in England, in Hertfordshire, in Western Europe, and there are hundreds of thousands upon thousands of Christians gathering to celebrate this central truth that Jesus is alive. 
Say that with me again. Jesus is alive. I'm not gonna spend any more time unpacking that. Maybe I've sown a few thoughts and you research it. You ask these difficult questions. Well, see what conclusion you come to. But I wanna look at some of the little nuances here. I, I want to, for example, just, just think for a moment upon this little thing that John has slipped into this account when Jesus speaks to Mary from outside the tomb and she thinks he's a gardener. What's that got to do with anything? Why has he put that in there? Just a little detail, it brings it alive, it paints a picture. I think it's there for more, for, for more weight and more reason than that. Jesus is seen as the gardener. You know, we did a series a few weeks ago called The City, and many of you seem to enjoy that. It's still on the podcast, still on the videocast. And one of the little things that we said, that you know, life began in the garden, Garden of Eden. That's what our scriptures, our tradition holds. It began in the garden. It'll finish in the city, the new Jerusalem. But in the garden, in that Garden of Eden, so we read in Genesis, a great tragedy took place, a great tragedy. In this wonderful, idyllic place where every need was provided for, that precious gift that you and I have, which is free will. God made us not just like the other creatures who are just dependent upon his hand, his grace, his mercy, and live in in, as far as we know, but who can tell, who live in that sort of, that, that place of undying trust because that's the way they're wired. We were given this regal gift, free will. And for free will to be really real, you have to have the choice of walking on the dark side. If all you can do is walk on the right side, it, well, it's great, but it's so much better when we choose to walk on the right side. And so we were given this precious gift, and we were told to live and work and enjoy God's blessing, but that there were certain things. There was one thing in the garden that we should not do. But what, what was it that kept playing out in our mind? It was the one thing. It was the one thing. We were drawn to the dark side. Sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? You know? Drawn to the dark side. And tragically, when we thought no one was looking, we tasted the fruit. And it was bittersweet. And ever since that time, we've been in trouble. Because there are some choices that one makes that one may regret for the rest of our days. There may be choices that you made in relationships and jobs and decisions that to this day you think, yeah, oh my gosh, Whew, what was I thinking of? Some things can't be undone. And when we turned our back on God and said, you know, that's really kind of you. Thank you very much. We love what you're doing here. Nice what you've done with the place. But you know what? I'm going to do, you know, I'll be back, you know, I want to stay friends, but I want to do this thing. 
And ever since then, philosophers and theologians and people who are not philosophers and theologians have wondered why we are capable of such terrible things. The bombings we've, we've heard about recently. How are we capable of doing such things? Immanuel Kant said this, we are all made from crooked timber. I like that. You know, sometimes great things could be made from crooked timber, but we are all made from crooked timber. But what the gospel, what the Christian faith tells us is that God didn't wash his hands of us, quite the opposite. He became one with us. Jesus, who is God, became man, God-man, celebrated at Christmas. And what's more, even though he himself was without sin, as our elder brother, our Lord, our Savior, he stepped into our place. And on Good Friday, we celebrate the fact that what appeared to be a winner becoming a loser was actually Christ himself dying upon the cross for the sins of the world. God himself picked up the tab. God himself intervened, knowing that we could not help ourselves, intervened, paid the price for our sin. And now gives us a second chance. A chance which, by the grace of God, we'll take with both hands. By the grace of God, but still a free choice. You can choose not to. You can say, mm, thanks, but no thanks. Very nice. Like the, like the sentiment. Nice card, thank you. But because God is God, it doesn't end there. And what we do today is we celebrate the new creation the new garden. So Jesus reveals himself to Mary in a garden as the gardener. John 15 says, my father is the gardener. It's a nice image. And it's as if God's, you know, we put the clocks forward last night. It's as if God turns the clock back. We can still make foul choices. And I know I have. And I know you have as well, even though I don't know what the specifics are. What God does in the second garden is he reveals himself as the gardener. And what's more, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, as the second Adam. An Adam who won't make lousy choices on our behalf. A second Adam who lives now and reigns with God in that exalted place, in that place where we are we're always designed to live, a place of relationship, a place of connection. And so God comes to us, the second Adam. And this Easter and the first Easter is, as it were, the first of days. The first of days, a new day. And in this place now, today, in the 21st century, here in Western Europe, we can, those of us who have faith in Jesus, can say with confidence that we are discovering that Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, is the sum of all our longings. What do I mean by that? It's a little phrase of mine which I'm very fond of, perhaps overly fond of. To the one who yearns for wealth and prosperity, Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you eternal treasure, treasure in heaven. To the one who 
longs for hearth and home, for security and safety. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. Welcome home, an eternal home. To the one who is just dissatisfied and stressing and longing for relationship, who goes from one relationship to another, who, who has invested everything in relationships only to have them fall apart. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Many of us have known that kind of pain. Jesus offers us now, through his death and his resurrection, Jesus offers us not just connection, not even just relationship, not even unity, and all of those things are wonderful and part of the package. What Jesus offers us now is oneness. Oneness. Our spirit is now washed clean if we would just trust in Jesus and ask his forgiveness so that we can connect, can be united, can become one with God the Father. Eden is restored. The evil is undone. There is a new creation. There is a new wonder. And you can embrace it today. As I draw this little talk to a close, I found a rather nice, rather poetic video clip. I want to finish on this and then we'll, we'll do the next thing. Thank you. Bless you, Jesus. There is a rumor. There was a rumor that the world was formed in love. It was, it is. God invites us. God invites us to come home. God invites us to embrace Him. God invites us to take hold of the free gift of love, forgiveness, of salvation that He holds out to us today. And as we do that, as we put our trust in Him, and it is a trust thing, as we trust Him, the Bible puts it beautifully, poetically, says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. What's your present and future going to be? The old or the new? The old or the new? It'll take a step of faith. It'll take risk. There will be days when you think, I really don't understand this. I just want to give up. It's just too complicated. It's too hard. But you will find yourself doing life 
in all its complexity, in all its challenges, in all its difficulties, in the company of one who was not there before, in the company of God himself, the gardener who makes all things new.